Welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Temptation is not sin. It's when we yield ourselves to that thing. That's when it becomes sin. I believe what this is, and I'm going to trust you. So what prophecies were they studying that helped them know when the Messiah would come? That's a good question. And I think we've got a pretty good answer for you here. Hi there, and welcome to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. It's really good to have you with us, us being Wes Peppers, and I am John Bradshaw. Line Upon Line is where we answer your Bible questions. If you have one to submit, we'd love you to write to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Of course, that's email, lineuponline at iiw.org. We have some Interesting questions coming up. Let me greet you, Wes. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Pastor John. Great to be here always. Yeah, we've got a good question here. Let me let me find the very first one we're asking. It's from uh, it's from Carlton. Who are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter eleven? Yeah, you look at Revelation chapter eleven and verse four, and it talks about these. and And uh, a lot of people claim to be the two witnesses, but I I think that they fail at the actual qualifications for it. But Revelation chapter eleven verse four. Uh, well, in the first parts of the verses, he talks about the two witnesses. Verse three. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. Then verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Well, obviously we don't just make guesses at that, or we don't just put our own ideas to it, as some people do, thinking they themselves are the two witnesses. But there's another passage in Scripture, Zechariah chapter 4, where the Bible talks about those very things. It says the two olive branches and the lampstands, these are the word of God. So we very firmly believe that the two witnesses are none other than the Old and New Testaments, the word of God. And uh, I think the Bible is pretty clear on that. Yeah, otherwise you've got somebody who lives with 1260 days and in Bible prophecy a day represents a year because it talks about that in Revelation chapter 11. So during that time, that 1260-year period, much of which covered the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. you had the the two witnesses, the Old and the New Testament, the Scriptures testifying in behalf of God mm-hmm. at a time. I don't know who it would be that's 1260 years old if it wasn't the Old and New Testament. I don't know anybody. Well, the other thing, too, is it talks about them being dressed in sackcloth during that time, which is a Ooh, time yeah. when the Word of God was oppressed during the Dark Ages. It was oftentimes illegal to read the Word of God or possess the Word of God. And so there's a lot of elements to that prophecy we could comment on. But to answer the question, it's the Word of God. Amen. Tonya asks us, Scripture makes clear that God reaches a point when he abandons a people to the gods of their flesh. Is there any point of return once a nation or people have reached this point? So what she's saying is that God waits and waits and waits, then he abandons them. Does he change his mind about that? No, I don't think so. As a nation, if you've reached that point, the warnings have come prior to that point. And so I don't think if a nation reaches that point that they're going to want to ever turn back. They're not going to have a desire for that. They have scorned God's every warning and every invitation. But what about individuals? I think individuals could. You have the nation of Israel, not that God condemned them to, I mean, he did bring destruction, but not that the whole, every person in Israel would be lost. But even after they were removed as God's chosen people, individuals could still have faith in Christ and be saved. So there's always that hope for every person. Yeah, and that's true. You know, if God said to the Ammonites, 
Ammon as a nation, I'm done with. Doesn't mean there wasn't one sincere person yeah, in there course. who later on, you know, sure. changed his mind or left town. But speaking of nations, no, I mean, once you pass the point of no return, you pass the point of no return. And that would be true with those nations, n- not that many of them in the Bible who have done that. Hey, here's one from Irene who says, We have heard some pastors say that people from many denominations will be in heaven. But how can that be when the Bible specifically teaches baptism by immersion? So, the question is, how can people who aren't baptized by immersion go to heaven? Right? Yeah. Now, you would say people from a wide range of religious backgrounds may be in heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could name 10, 15, or 20 denominations. You say, sure, I can imagine people from those denominations being in heaven. No question. Sure. Okay, so let me ask you this question. How can someone who is wrong theologically be saved? Well, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17 that in times of ignorance, God winked. So God doesn't hold us accountable for the things that we didn't know. Now, if a person knows the truth and they're resisting that truth, well, that's when there becomes a danger. But if a person, there'll be thousands or millions of of Sunday keepers or people that believe when you die, you go straight to heaven rather than resting in the grave. There's lots of ignorance throughout history regarding the scriptures. So God doesn't say that we're necessarily saved by knowing everything correctly, but we're saved by faith in Christ. And But we want to know the truth. We, God wants us to know the truth, and God reveals the truth, so we want to educate ourselves. And when we come across truth that may be different than what we've previously known, we don't want to resist it. We want to yield to it, surrender to it, follow it. And so certainly there would be people that uh, may have been baptized by sprinkling or by pouring or not at all. Well, Jesus was baptized by immersion for anybody who couldn't and may have been done so the wrong way in ignorance. It'd be a terrible thing if God said, actually, your eternal life is contingent upon you passing a, a test. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you a hundred theology questions. Right. And if you get them all right, you're ready. If you get one wrong, sorry, I can't have you. Because that's what this thing about baptism by immersion yes. would be, right? Yes. Somebody's wrong. They're mistaken. Wrong doesn't mean lost. Wrong doesn't mean not a Christian. Now... Looking at that and refusing, saying, no, I know God's will and I don't want to do it. Yeah, I don't want to stand in that place because that's resisting the Holy Spirit. That's saying no to the leading of Jesus. You're essentially saying, I don't want to follow your leading. Mm -hmm. But we need to be a little bit gracious about this and understand salvation isn't uh, only extended to you when you are as right about the Bible as I am. And it would be a dangerous thing if it was because I don't know a single person who could lay claim to being absolutely right about absolutely everything. Now, I know what you've written here, Irene, and that is that you're dealing with baptism. That's kind of a big one. But, I mean, is it? Yes, it is, but how much bigger is it than some other doctrinal point that you might not think is important? So here's what we do. We understand that God judges people based on what they do with what they know, based on the sincerity of their relationship and their surrender to Jesus, based on them accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior and repenting of their sins. Then what God wants to do, of course, is to grow people so that their understanding can be as full and complete as is uh, spiritually possible. But if somebody doesn't make it all the way there theologically, 
We wouldn't want to think that God then says, sorry, you can't make it in here because there was a theological tenet that you didn't quite understand or a point that you didn't quite grasp. So God sees people, sees their heart, understands them, knows them, loves them, and saves them on that basis. What have they done with Jesus? How have they exercised faith in him? Yes, he wants us to grow, uh, and he'll keep working to give us opportunities to do so. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a question here for you, and it comes from Emmanuel. Which day is the exact day of worship as given in the Bible? Which day is considered to be the Sabbath? Yeah, that's a great question, and I can tell it's a very sincere question, Emmanuel, so thank you for that. The Bible is very clear from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The entire Bible, it doesn't flip-flop, it doesn't change, it doesn't shift. So let me give you a Genesis. Yeah. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. We're in the second chapter. There's 1186 chapters in the Bible. We're in chapter number dos. Two. Number two. And right there at the beginning of this chapter. Previous chapter has only 31 verses. So we're starting with verse 32 of the Bible. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So right there, the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, we're introduced to the Sabbath of the Bible. It is the seventh day of the week. Yeah, and it continues going on. I mean, right in the heart of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 12 are very clear, and I won't read all of them, but just part of it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But God is clear here, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Notice he doesn't say a day in seven or a day that you choose, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It also doesn't say the Sabbath of the Jews or the Israelites, but the Sabbath of the Lord. And the reason we celebrate that is because of the work he did at creation and the work that he does to recreate our hearts. So if you track your way through the Bible, you go through Isaiah. Isaiah, I'm in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 6. The sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, to his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, it takes hold of my name. Isaiah chapter 58. I'll read you. I'm, I'm just jumping in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, that is, don't trample on it. From doing your pleasure on my holy day, call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and honor him, not doing your own ways, finding your own pleasure, speaking your own words. Then you will delight yourself in the Lord. I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob thy father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's right. All the way through. Now, people would say, at this point, they'd say, oh, that's nice, Pastor John, but there's four or five verses from the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, we'll give you at least one. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. That word man is humanity and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord, also Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so well, there's many in the New Testament. Well, was it changed? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, looking forward to the year 70 AD when Jerusalem would be destroyed. Woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. He spoke this before he died, looking forward to the year 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Sabbath would still be absolutely binding. No question about it. Mm-hmm. And then right. if you want to know which day of the week the Sabbath is, well, we look in Luke And we get down there to the end of Luke chapter 23, 
where the Bible says it like this. Verse 54, That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. The women which came with them uh, went to the sepulcher, and verse 56, rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. They went down there on the preparation day. They rested the Sabbath day. Jesus was raised from the dead. The next verse, Luke 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week. Before the preparation day and before the first day of the week was the Sabbath. That's the day we call Saturday. Jesus rested in the tomb on the seventh day, Sabbath, that day that you said was a gift given to us by God. That's right. That's right. I know we've had this discussion sort of before, and you've sure. mentioned how in Isaiah 66 it says that we'll be keeping the Sabbath mm-hmm. through eternity. Even in heaven. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. right. Very and, clear. And then you've got over in Revelation chapter 14, here is the patience of the saints, saints the saved. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. One of those commandments is the fourth. That would be remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear all the way through. It's pretty clear. The Lord's Day, Revelation one ten, what Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. So the the Bible in Revelation 1 doesn't say which day is the Lord's Day, but other places in Scripture does. It's the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So, Emmanuel, we would encourage you to be biblical. Stand with the Bible. And knowing the truth of what the Bible says, be encouraged to honor God, keep His commandments. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What day is it? It's the seventh day of the week. It's the day that today we would call Saturday. Saturday. Interesting in Espanol, Sábado. In Russian, Subota. In Swahili, Sabato. The name for Saturday in many languages is Sabbath. That's right. Great question. Back with more in a moment with West Peppers. I'm John Bradshaw. This is Line Upon Line. And it's brought to you by It Is Written. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. There might be days when you just can't seem to find the energy to take on life's challenges. Moments or maybe days or weeks where basic tasks can feel overwhelming. Times when you feel as though your heart and mind are trapped in a fog. Countless people all around the world are dealing with the weight of depression. Most people will experience depression either firsthand or in the lives of friends or family members. There's hardly a person on earth who hasn't in some way been touched by its weight. That's why I sat down with a mental health expert to discuss this vitally important subject. Join me and Dr. Neil Nedley as together we explore what actually works in helping battle depression, its root causes and its symptoms. Don't miss the helpful and practical information in this series, proven to benefit physical, mental and emotional health. Clearing the Fog. Available now on It Is Written TV. Hi, and welcome back to Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. We have the inestimable privilege of answering your Bible questions. If you have one you'd like us to take a crack at, uh, email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll do our best. We'll do our best. Interesting one from Samuel, who says, I was reading Revelation chapter 3, Jesus counsels the Laodicean church to buy from him gold refined in the fire, 
white clothes to wear and salve to put on their eyes. Mm. Wants to know what these things represent. Sure. So let's go to Revelation chapter 3. We'll take a look at this. It's a wonderful passage of the Bible. Speaking to the church of Laodicea, the word Laodicea means a people judged. It is believed that the Laodicean church represents the church of the judgment period. That would be the church in earth's last days. The problem Laodicea has is apathy and self-satisfaction. Jesus speaks here, I know your works, that you're neither cold or hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The problem here is that the people don't know their own spiritual state. They think they're okay and they're not really very okay. Laodicea, uh, kind of represented by the lukewarm water. Now there's a great story that's being told that up the hill at Herapolis, there was hot water, which there still is, and I was there recently. You pump it down. They pumped it down the hill, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It's a great story, but it's not true. You've recently found that out, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There. Back in the day, there was a lake between the two places. Yes. They weren't pumping any water from A to right. B. That's right. You've got Herapolis to the north. Yeah. To the east, another church found in the Bible, the Church of the Colossians, Colossae. It's right by Laodicea. Herapolis had hot water. Colossae had cold water. Their water came down from the mountains, tall mountains. It was like snow melt. And they weren't hot or cold. They were lukewarm. Nothing really to do with the water in their town. It had to do with their spiritual state, and that's just an an illustration of that. So Jesus says, buy gold tried in the fire. So what you've got to know and really appreciate about this is Jesus says, I'm looking at you guys. You're in a spiritually perilous condition. However, I'm offering you a solution. I'm showing you the way out. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm done with you because you're in bad shape. He says, this is the way to get out of that situation. Gold tried in the fire. I have heard it said that this represents faith that works by love. That's right. And I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. First Peter 1 verse 7 mm-hmm. seems to indicate that that would be so. Sure. Well, then, what about this white clothing? Uh, where did we read that a moment ago? Well, verse 18, where it says in my version, white raiment that you would be clothed. Mm-hmm. What do we believe that this white clothing represents? Yeah, in several different places, white is always a symbol of purity in the Bible. But the righteousness of Christ, Isaiah chapter 61, uh, chapter 64, verse 6, uh, Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, a number of places it talks about being the righteousness of Christ. And so, you know, you think of the wedding garment in that mm-hmm. parable, Matthew chapter 25, where the guest comes in and, and the guests were invited to wear the wedding garment provided by the king. And he didn't have it. Everybody else had it. And he was called out, questioned, and eventually thrown out. What was the wedding garment? It's the righteousness of Christ. And so, Obviously, the church, in leaving their first love and becoming lukewarm, they've lost sight of that, and they're looking to uh, have their own works of righteousness. But God says, you need mine, not yours. Yeah. Interesting. The Laodiceans way back in that day were famous for producing a certain black cloth. Yes, yes. They made black cloth. Yes. Jesus says, I want you to wear white raiment. That would have got their attention. That's right. And he said, I sell 
so that you may see. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know this until relatively recently. There were medical facilities in Laodicea. There were ophthalmologists there, mm-hmm. and they had produced a certain eye salve. Yeah, yeah. It was good for the eyes. So Jesus was speaking their language, as if to say, though, now you got eye salve, but once you have the real That's eye right. salve. And what do you think that that is represented by or representative of? Sure. A number of passages, um, Psalm eighteen twenty-eight and chapter 19, verse 8, and, and other ones. Uh, and Daniel chapter 5, verse 14, Luke 11, 34 to 36, talks about the Holy Spirit being the one that opens our eyes and helps us understand the Scriptures, helps us understand God. And so that would be a symbol of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to the truth of God's Word. Notice what Jesus says in the rest of this passage. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So Jesus is speaking to some self-satisfied people who are not aware, not cognizant of their own spiritual need. And he says, I love you. That's why I'm rebuking you. I want the very best for you. I'm correcting you. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Really, really powerful. Jesus shares growth opportunities with us because he wants an eternal closeness with us. So if God is bringing to mind growth areas for you, if you're learning that something is displeasing in the sight of God, if you learn you're wrong about something or your attitude hasn't been right, the Lord shares those things with you so that you can grow. He wants you there for the long haul throughout all of eternity. So when God shines a light on your pathway, don't, don't take it badly. Don't be negative. Uh, thank God that he is growing you and educating you and wanting the absolute best for you. That's yeah. the way God is. That's the way every mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid of that chastisement. <laughs> uh, it'll be good for you. Lee writes, Jesus says to the Father, of those you have given me, I have lost none. Doesn't that confirm predestination? That the idea that mm-hmm. I'm not saved by my own choice, uh, but that God has made a predetermination that you're going to be saved sure. no matter what. Well, that's uh, coming from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, where Jesus is praying. And no, it's not referring to predestination, not at all. When you look at the actual context of the verse, he's praying and speaking specifically about his disciples. Now, we'll just read that text, John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, the scripture might be fulfilled. That's talking about Judas, the son of perdition. So in this context, he's speaking about the 12 disciples. He's not speaking about every believer that's ever lived. And so it's, he's, he, notice it says, these are the ones that I kept. It's past tense. So it's those that he had been with on the earth. So, you know, you can't really connect that to predestination. The Bible doesn't teach predestination. The Bible teaches that all who are chosen, those who are the elect, are those who have chosen God and responded to his invitation. Pretty simple. Kim writes about a friend saying, my friend listens to the news all the time and is concerned about nuclear war. Is there any mention of nuclear war in the Bible? And Kim, the answer is, not as far as we can tell. Now, it may be that there's some symbol somewhere that we haven't learned to interpret, and maybe that means something like that. But I don't think so. You ever found anything like that in the Bible? I haven't found anything. 
No. There is a reference in Revelation 11, 8 that says that God is, uh, the time of judgment has come and God destroys those that destroy the earth. But that could be any one of a hundred other things. It could be that. But I want to say to you that your friend is maybe fearful about not just nuclear war, but probably if he's fearful of that, fearful of other things. The world's not going to end by nuclear war. It's not going to end by a meteorite coming and uh, striking the earth and destroying it. The world's going to end with Jesus coming and Jesus returning. And so that's the event we need to prepare for, not for some great war between the nations or anything else, but get your heart right with God. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Amen. I've read about wearing the spiritual armor, but I don't think I actually know how to wear it to win battles because, if I'm being honest, I don't think I'm really winning right now. That's Francis. How do you wear the spiritual armor? Why don't we look at it in Ephesians chapter 6 where the Bible writer says, Put on the whole armor of God. I'm turning there now. It's Ephesians chapter 6, and we should be beginning in right around verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He then mentions, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So I'll get down to verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. So how does somebody do that? The belt of truth. How, yeah. how, do, you, how do you put that on? Well, Jesus said, thy word is truth, speaking to his father. So the Bible is the truth. So if you're absorbing yourself with the Bible, you're putting it in your mind, you're reading it, you're memorizing it, you're letting yourself be immersed into it, that's the same as putting on that belt. It's the exact same thing. All right. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Notice the breastplate goes right over your heart. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you put that on? You believe. Abraham believed and it was counted him for righteousness. You claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And now you've got truth buckling you up, and now you've got righteousness over your heart, and that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Whereas we go on here, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What's that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, you know, you want to uh, obviously walk in the right path. You want to be also, you can carry the gospel to others, sharing that with others. You want to be make sure that... Um, you know, as you're, every day that you're letting your day start and preparing your heart to receive Christ right. anew. And so there's a, multiple pieces that could go with that. Yeah, you're living by the Word of God. Right. You, you, you're living according to the principles contained in the Gospel. Mm-hmm. You're not putting nothing on your feet. But this is just a way of explaining that just as a soldier prepares for battle, you are preparing for spiritual battle and you're taking the Gospel with you in your heart. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, that's, I, one would hope that's straightforward. Mm-hmm. You claim Jesus by faith and you believe by faith. And taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You got anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, think, just thinking about the faith, and I love Romans chapter 4 where Abraham, the Bible says that faith simply was Abraham believing that God would do what he said he would do. That's having a firm conviction in your life, no matter what your circumstances. So that's another element. But all these things are pieces that go to the whole, the whole armor, the Amen. whole puzzle. So you put on the whole armor of God ultimately by faith. You believe Jesus is your Savior. The Bible is the Word of God. You are armored up. 
Thanks for joining us. We're going to do this again, and we hope that you will be here with us when we do. With West Peppers, I'm John Bradshaw. This is Line Upon Line from It Is Written.